the word of God speaks to us. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and in each turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church, and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. This is God's word to us. Thank you. Lord just whispered to me as I walked up, good luck. <laughs> You're going to need it. <laughs> For those of you who don't know me, my name is JJ. I get the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at Frontline. It's been a little while since I've been up here opening God's word with you. So I'm so excited uh, to do this. And it's a joy uh, to be back in the pulpit. And uh, this... Uh, this text has so much to offer us. Don't be nervous. And uh, I think you'll be encouraged. Pray for me, I'll pray for you, and we'll jump in together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it encourages us, builds us up. Lord, we come to you this morning, as the psalmist says, as people who are poor and needy. But like the psalmist, we take heart at the thought that you take thought for us. Thank you that you see us. Give us a fresh and tangible sense of how close you've come to us this morning through your word, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. You know that moment when your grandma says she can't find her glasses and then she realizes that they've been on her head the whole time. <laughs> Sometimes we carry things so closely, we're not even conscious of them anymore. And I say that because there are two things that we need to name out loud before we jump into this passage. Two things most of us carry so closely, we're not even conscious of them anymore. And the first is how we think about our happiness. Recently, a doctor named Ronald Dworkin writing for the journal First Things titled his article, Happiness Requires Resistance. Dworkin explains, in the past, people had to resist overbearing families, overbearing neighbors, overbearing communities, all in order to preserve their individuality. But today, many Americans are so alone, 
They have no one who needs to be resisted at all. That's because we've made unqualified freedom the highest goal in Western culture without thinking about the fallout. We've made it our goal to remove all resistance, but the more we succeed, the less human we tend to feel. You think of a rock climber who starts to free solo, climbing without the resistance of a rope. They'll describe often feeling a heightened state of euphoria. But the line between free soloing a mountain and falling off a mountain becomes razor thin. Without the resistance of a rope, total freedom can turn into a total loss of freedom in a moment. And we live in a culture where as people continue to untether themselves from institutions and untether themselves from authorities and untether themselves from committed relationships, they too often feel a momentary rush of euphoria as they escape resistance, but also as a result, many are losing their grip, falling into unprecedented isolation and depression and addiction. We're a generation who grew up with the promises of technology. Technology promised us we'd never have to be alone, and yet we've never been more lonely. Technology promised us we could put our attention anywhere we want, and yet we've never been more starved for the transcendent. Technology promised us we would always be heard, and yet we've never felt more invisible. But there's a second thing we carry so closely we're hardly conscious of it anymore, and that's how we think about our purpose. And I think you'll see as we work through these verses that Paul is calling us to a way of being together in our gatherings that flies in the face of unconscious American consumeristic church going. Since consumerism started coming to church decades ago, gathering with the church has come to look more and more like going to the mall or the movies than getting together with your family. And so we're increasingly finding ourselves alone together. And the sneaky thing about consumerism is it doesn't just shape what you and I put in our Amazon carts, but it shapes how we relate to experiences, how we relate to our relationships, even how we relate to our religion. Our whole purpose and identity in life begins to revolve around consuming my way into some sense of satisfaction that always seems to be just out of reach. So in these verses, we're going to discover that Paul is calling us to real resistance, real tethering, real authority, real commitment. And because of these cultural waters we all swim in that I just described for you, his words are probably going to trigger our fight or flight instincts. If we show up to this gathering as spectators and then all of a sudden we're called to commit and contribute, our flight instincts are probably going to kick in. If we show up to this gathering assuming nobody's going to tell us what to do and then we're suddenly called to submit to authority, our fight instincts are probably going to kick in. So I want us to consider together how the Holy Spirit, through his word, might speak to both of those instincts. If your flight instincts kick in when we gather, your flight instincts, Paul wants to say to you, don't worry, (laughs) we have the Spirit. Maybe your flight instincts manifest as you tending to show up 
feeling bankrupt. Man, I got nothing to offer. Paul says, verse 26, let all things be done for building up. He takes a construction metaphor to say that one of the primary reasons we gather is to put spiritual strength into each other. Because the Bible doesn't know anything about a self-sufficient Christian. Paul doesn't want us to think of ourselves so much as going to church as being the church when we gather. And he wants us to not think of our gatherings as a one-way street. We actually gather to put strength into each other for all the places where we're going to be too weak to stand alone in the six days in between. One of my all-time favorite songwriters, David Ramirez, famously sings, They raised me on donuts and coffee. Under fluorescent lights, we watched outdated movies. It smelled like a hospital, but no one was being cured. That's not what Paul's talking about here, is it? God's design is that our Sunday gatherings look less like some kind of museum for saints and more like a hospital for sinners who are being cured. Real Christians won't come strutting into this gathering, and they'll sometimes come crawling in. That's why Paul says back in verse 3 of this chapter, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. You walked in here today not feeling spiritual enough to offer help to others? Welcome to the club. God often gives us things to give away right in the places where we feel most torn down, most discouraged, most bankrupt. Prophecy, which Paul takes as an example, isn't a badge or a point of pride. It's medicine given by God to give to each other for our heart sickness. And so that means that if you showed up feeling bankrupt, Paul's saying, fair warning, you might suddenly find yourself building others up anyway because you have the Spirit. Or maybe you tend to show up not feeling so much bankrupt as invisible. Maybe you tend to show up feeling invisible. And so when Paul says in verse 31, for you can all prophesy so that all may learn and all be encouraged, the holy moment for you is when you feel seen by God. As you're sitting there feeling invisible, maybe someone else in the room by God's grace finds their attention drawn to you. Maybe they already know that you're going through a hard season, and so at first they dismiss noticing you as obvious, and then a scripture they read earlier in the week comes into their mind. Their first instinct might be to brush it away as their attempt to dredge up something from the Bible and pretend it matches your situation, but they can't seem to shake it. And so they grab one of the deacons who knows you both, and they approach you after the service, and they greet you warmly. Hey, it's so good to see you. I felt my attention drawn to you during the service. As I thought about you and wondered how you're holding up, a scripture came to mind and I felt like maybe I was supposed to share it with you. Can I pray for you? And as they read the scripture and they begin to pray, they feel a strong sense of self-forgetful compassion for you welling up inside them. And they notice their words are hitting home as tears start running down your face. After they pray, they ask you if anything they prayed particularly stood out to you. You mentioned that someone else shared that exact same scripture with you just the other day. 
Plus, some of the things they prayed exactly match some of your innermost thoughts, word for word, thoughts you haven't shared with anybody. They give you a hug. You make plans to grab coffee later in the week, and then when you're heading to your car later, you suddenly realize that you feel lighter than when you walked in. You feel less invisible, for you can all prophesy so that all may learn and all be encouraged. You showed up feeling invisible, and you suddenly found yourself seen and known because we have the Spirit. And now maybe for some others of us, it's our fight instincts that tend to kick in when we gather. Our fight instincts. So if your fight instincts kick in when we gather, Paul says to you as well, don't worry. We have the Spirit. Maybe you've been showing up braced to fight off charismatic chaos as we continue to wade through the waters of 1 Corinthians. But in our passage, we can see repeatedly that the gifts of God always come to us hand in hand with the guidance of God. The gifts of God always come to us hand in hand with the guidance of God. He's not going to let this thing go off the rails. Look again at Verses 28 and 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Paul's saying the Spirit of God's not the author of chaos. God is so committed to rational, intelligible communication on a Sunday that he'll even take something he invented and gave me to build me up tongues, as Steve so helpfully taught us several weeks ago, and he coaches me to keep it to myself if there's nobody present who I know is supernaturally gifted to interpret, so that if you're here today considering the claims of Christianity, you won't think I'm crazy, and you won't leave only having heard things your rational mind can't access. That's why Paul calls tongues a sign for unbelievers, back in verses 21 through 25, if you weren't with us. You're supposed to keep silent because Paul's quoting from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, who himself is referring to Deuteronomy, recalling how God warned his old covenant people Israel that if they didn't turn from their evil, he would discipline them by sending other nations to conquer them, distant superpowers whose speech they wouldn't understand. Point being, unintelligible speech is a sign of God's judgment. But if you're visiting with us today and you're feeling your spiritual need, Paul's saying God wants you to hear good news spoken to you in a language you can understand. The whole point of our gathering is that God became a man in order to live the life you and I failed to live and die the death you and I deserve to die so we can receive forgiveness we could never earn. God wants you to leave this gathering with crystal clarity that your part, your only part, is to simply lean your whole weight on Jesus and stop putting confidence in your own goodness as a means of getting to God. Yeah, there's chaos. <laughs> Paul's writing to address it, but the chaos he's trying to rein in isn't because of the spirit. It's because of the Corinthians. <laughs> We've heard a lot about what a wild place 
Corinth was. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. But it was also like an ancient seaside Silicon Valley. A culture where everybody was an entrepreneur and everybody was trying to sell everybody else on their brand. In the words of one scholar, Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. Public recognition was often more important than facts. In that culture, a person's sense of worth was based on recognition by others of one's accomplishment. That's why archaeologists keep discovering in Corinth tons of self-promoting public inscriptions that have survived to this day. Self-promoting public inscriptions is a pretty accurate description of most social media posts. They weren't that different from us, right? The bottom line is that the Corinthians' tendency was to arrive at their assembly like competitors fighting for the spiritual spotlight. They feared not being seen. That was the source of their charismatic chaos. But our tendency is different than theirs. If we had to If we had to stereotype, I would say that our tendency is to arrive at our assembly like consumers and default to passive participation for the exact opposite reasons, because most of us would fear ever being seen as self-promoting or falsely spiritual or trying to draw attention to ourselves. Those are not values in our culture. Those are things that you would be ashamed of exhibiting. So Paul looks at the Corinthians and he says, hey, you know what's gonna fix your tendency to compete and talk over each other? You need to get better at prophesying. Verse 26, so that all things can be done for building up. Instead of drawing attention to yourselves or talking over each other, I want you to start reflecting back to each other God's attention towards you all. You don't have to fight for the spotlight. You don't have to fight for God's attention. He sees you and he's moving towards you. But I think if Paul were here today in Frontline Edmund, he'd say, hey, Frontline Edmund, you want to fix your tendency to passively consume or to sit on your hands spiritually? And by the way, I'm indicting myself in these habits as well. I find myself drifting into them all the time. Paul would say, different disorder, same prescription. (laughs) Get better at prophesying. Verse 26, so that all things can be done for building up. Frontline Edmund, I want you to obey the Spirit's prompting. I want you to speak out words of encouragement that God is going to spontaneously call to your mind. That's not self-promotion. You don't need to fear being seen as falsely spiritual. You don't need to fear the spotlight. God sees your hearts. He hears your fears. He knows your motives. We're so in danger of being conscientious, we're going to cut ourselves right out of the game. If Paul were here, he'd probably say, Man, if you're not willing to ever miss a shot, you're never going to end up taking any shots, you're not going to be able to play. This kind of bizarre spiritual perfectionism is going to obtain. It's going to paralyze you, put you on the bench. So I want you to prophesy. Now, people mishear this encouragement all the time as though I'd be encouraging people to deliver inaccurate prophetic words and then I would be applauding when they miss. Of course not. What I'm advocating is that we be willing to do something imperfectly as the best protection against being unwilling to do it at all. And make no mistake, we will do it imperfectly. That's Paul's point in verse 29. It's one of the clearest examples in the entire Bible that prophecy is no threat to the authority of Scripture like so many people fear. 
Why? Notice verse 29. Quote, let the others weigh what is said. Weighed against what? Weigh prophecy against what? Verse 36, the word of God. Paul's clear. We're only to treat the word of God as authoritative. Verse 37, as a command of the Lord. In contrast, he says earlier in chapter 13, verse 9, we prophesy only in part. We see partially and we prophesy imperfectly. But unfortunately, too many of us in this room have resolved to make sure and never do what we've seen others do badly. But the solution to misuse for Paul is not neglect, but proper use. Hey, Corinthians, here's how to fix your charismatic chaos. I want you to prophesy more. (laughs) Hey, Frontline Edmund, here's, here's how to fix your passivity. I want you to prophesy more. Notice what Paul says, verse 31, will be the result of the kind of church that desires and pursues more of the Spirit in this way. We'll all learn and be encouraged. And again, verse 33, because God's not a God of confusion but peace, the proper use of the gifts isn't going to lead to chaos. It's going to lead to clarity, not greater confusion but greater peace. And it's because of the teaching of Scripture that we prize our spirit-filled distinctive here at Frontline. Yeah, spirit-filled practice can descend into chaos, of course. That's why Paul's bringing correction. But chaos isn't the fruit of our spirit-filled distinctive. It's the fruit of pride, immaturity, ignorance of the Bible, things we all struggle with. But the fruit of our spirit-filled distinctive is right here in our passage. It's woven throughout these verses. Learning, encouragement, clarity, peace, maturity, unity. Paul's trying to capture our imagination by describing the kind of healthy, spirit-filled church that's marked by profound mutual encouragement. In feeding, you're fed. In giving, you receive. In uncrossing your arms and taking a risk, you serve somebody else. And now you suddenly discover you got some skin in the game. You're tethered. You're tethered to these people in this place because you've started to participate in the Spirit's work. You put a stake in the ground. So maybe some of you showed up, braced, to fight off charismatic chaos. My hope, though, is that you would slowly find yourself experiencing instead safety and peace because we have the Spirit. Verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Others of you struggling with fight more than flight, maybe even showing up ready to fight against subjugation, And then you heard verses 33 through 35 read aloud and wondered if you came to the wrong place this morning. (laughs) Man, what on earth is going on in these verses? (laughs) It sounds like a hard left turn, but Paul's actually been talking about submission through the whole passage, so it's not out of character for him to pause and encourage wives towards godly submission because he's writing to people in a heady, progressive culture there in Corinth with the added liberating dynamic of the early Christian church where now men and women, slave, free, rich, poor, could all prophesy over each other democratically, pray over each other, even offer correction to each other, cutting across status or station 
And so Paul's reminding wives, hey, enjoy your newfound liberation in Christ, but don't forget you're married. <laughs> your newfound feminine liberation and devotion to the spirit are good things, but they're not at odds with submission to your husbands as unto Christ. And it's understandable that many women today would bristle at the word submission. It's too often been sub-biblically treated as a so-called women's issue. But even the most cursory reading of scripture repeatedly reminds us submission's not a women's issue, it's a Christian issue. Every Christian man or woman is called a major on initiative taking servant leadership in some relationships and godly submission and trust in other relationships. Every man is also a son called to honor his parents. Every man is called to submit to the loving servant leadership of his elders as well as honor and obey his boss. Nobody's exempt from submission. Paul writes in Titus 2, bondservants, be submissive to your own masters in everything. Be well-pleasing, not argumentative. In Titus 3, he writes to the whole church, hey, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And Colossians 3, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting and do it in the Lord. Paul's not telling these Corinthian women to get back in the kitchen. Paul's not a misogynist. He's not trying to muzzle women. All throughout the New Testament, we see him partnering with women, platforming women, expressing profound respect for women with whom he co-labors in the Lord. And also, as you've probably already noticed, he instructs wives to be silent in verse 34, right after instructing tongue speakers and prophets to also, in some sense, be silent in verses 28 and 30. So whatever Paul means by keep silent in 34, it can't be to muzzle women because he just finished giving explicit instructions on how women ought to pray and prophesy in the corporate gathering back in chapter 11, verse 5. So there are many different explanations of what on earth Paul is forbidding here in verses 33 through 35 and how to reconcile that with his encouragements to women in chapter 11, verse 5. But the list gets a lot shorter if we set aside explanations that argue Paul's simply contradicting himself or that he's changed his mind mid-letter. And the list gets even shorter if we set aside explanations that argue these verses aren't original to the Bible since these verses are included in every surviving ancient manuscript we have. So that basically leaves us with two likely explanations, neither of which is too far apart from each other. Here's how scholar Andrew Wilson describes the first view. In the first view, Paul is here forbidding women from the weighing of prophecy, the weighing of prophecy, because that involves a governmental responsibility to guard doctrine that Paul limits to the fathers of the church, the elders, the overseers. Now, if what I just said is completely unfamiliar to you, let me take you to 1 Timothy 2, where Paul talks about reserving doctrinal guardianship for men. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. 
contrary to what people assume when they hear his words there, notice how Paul grounds the distinction, the difference, not in inferiority or some kind of moral weakness or susceptibility, but in creation order, equality and difference, creation order. All biological life is bound up with order, which is connected to beautiful difference. It's how life comes about. If you're young in the room, your parents can explain that to you later. But Genesis 1 and 2 describe how complementarity is woven into creation. Now, some people believe any acknowledgement of difference equals inferiority. But Scripture strongly and repeatedly affirms both male and female equality in dignity, value, worth, intelligence, while at the same time affirming beautiful difference. Now, Andrew Wilson points out helpfully that in our day and age, to hear that women can't be elders will sound like the equivalent of denying that women can be CEOs. But it's more like the equivalent of denying that women can be fathers and that men can be mothers. When the church is constructed in healthy and biblically faithful ways, it's going to look less like a corporation and more like a family with both mothers and fathers blessing the people of God and feeding into the health of the church. We don't need some dishonoring sameness. If we're going to have a healthy family, we're going to need moms and we're going to need dads. And I'm so happy to serve at Frontline where the many women who serve as deacons in our church help make that goal of spiritual family more reality than aspiration. Because churches without female deacons make that honor and benefit of spiritual motherhood harder to attain. Now, everything I've just said, I believe to be supported elsewhere in scripture. I've shown you at least one of those passages. But the question is whether that's what Paul's talking about here In these verses? And the short answer is, I'm not quite sure. Okay, so that's the first view. The second view suggests Paul's talking less about creational order, as he does elsewhere, and more about Corinthian culture. The second view suggests some women in Corinth were cross examining other women's husbands, asking questions, bringing shame on themselves in the process. And Paul is forbidding this because it's not culturally honorable. As one scholar explains, there existed in the Greco-Roman world in the first century a strong prejudice against women speaking to other women's husbands. So in the society with strictly defined gender and social roles, such behavior would have been viewed as totally inappropriate. Now, if this second view is correct, then one could argue, obviously, Paul's instructions here are time-bound since today in Western society... There's zero cultural shame or impropriety in a woman asking a question in public of another woman's husband. I'm personally more persuaded by arguments for the first view, but men that I love and respect and who are much smarter than me uh, hold to the second view. Both views have strengths and weaknesses. Both views have some overlap. Neither view changes our comprehensive biblical understanding of leadership in the church and in the home. Let me say a couple more things before we move on. This passage can't be pressed into service to the idea that men ought to avoid learning anything spiritually accurate or edifying from women. That's so obvious, because if a woman prophesies, verse 31, she's not to be interrupted. Why? 
so that, verse 31, all may learn and all will be encouraged. So if the gifts are being used to build up the church, men are going to be learning and benefiting from all sorts of things brought by their sisters. As we think carefully about this whole letter, as we think carefully about the whole Bible, it's really clear that any church that actively prevents women from speaking, praying, or prophesying when the whole church gathers is actually in contradiction of Scripture's clear teaching. Our passage paints a picture of women exercising their spiritual gifts and natural talents in unhindered and diverse ways for the building up of the church. There's so much more I wish I could say. If you have more questions on this or you heard something that didn't sound like good news, I'd encourage you to reach out to an elder or a deacon. Also, if you'll visit frontlinechurch.com toolbox, frontlinechurch.com toolbox, we put several fantastic resources there. One is an essay by Andrew Wilson entitled Beautiful Difference. Two, a teaching entitled Is God a Misogynist by Mary Wilson. And finally, an excerpt from Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin's award-winning book, Confronting Christianity, entitled, What If I'm Not the Submissive Type? <laughs> that link again, frontlinechurch.com toolbox. We're not at our close, but we're drawing close. I say that for your encouragement. <laughs> Paul's been talking about submission the whole time. So he decides to just keep talking about submission. He says, man, why don't we just fix this thing? So in verse 37, he finally just throws his arms wide and he calls all the Corinthians a submission. Hey, if anybody thinks he's a prophet, if anybody thinks he's super spiritual, he needs to acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. He's been so gracious and diplomatic throughout this entire letter. And finally in chapter 14, he takes the gloves off and he says, man, you're not gonna be a benefit to anybody if you're unwilling to submit to anything. <laughs> now, we live in an age where the safety and beauty of good authority often goes unreported and the horrors and dangers of evil authority usually go viral. So it's easy to read Paul's words here through that lens and hear Paul as some kind of insecure and heavy-handed spiritual leader who's pounding the pulpit and saying, pay attention to me. But that's not what he's doing. He's not saying, hey, you better listen to me or you'll be sorry, I'm gonna tell my big brother Jesus. But Paul does have authority given to him by Jesus, but that's not his point here. He's simply saying, hey, some of you style yourselves as highly prophetic, good for you. And you might very well be brimming with the Spirit's power, ready to bless the socks off of everybody in sight. But if you want to really be a blessing to others instead of blowing up your church, I would invite you to marry your spiritual excitement with submission to the apostolic doctrine, to Scripture. Because it's the Spirit, Paul's saying, ultimately, who enables us to find Scripture persuasive and worthy of our submission. And true spirituality is not opposed to submission. In fact, true spirituality is profoundly marked by submission. So Paul says, I actually affirm your desire to be super spiritual. Let me tell you how. You go in through the door marked submission. Prophets and tongue speakers submitting their gifts to wise guidance. Wives submitting to the loving servant leadership of their husbands in as much as their husbands imitate the self-sacrifice of Jesus. All Christian men and women submitting their own opinions and preferences to the authority of God's revealed word. 
as Dallas Willard used to give a seminar entitled, Jesus, the smartest man who ever lived. (laughs) He wasn't just pure. He was also smarter than me (laughs) and smarter than you. We submit our own opinions and preferences to the authority of the word. So maybe you showed up braced to fight against subjugation. But my hope and prayer for you is that you would be surprised to find yourself increasingly persuaded by the safety and the beauty of biblical authority because we have the Spirit. So as we begin to draw to a close, we have to ask, why? (laughs) Can the Spirit-filled gifts and our gatherings possibly deliver on all this? He's given us so many instructions He's talked about so many ways it can go wrong. Is this really worth it? Why? Why is welcoming the work of the Spirit into our gatherings so significant? Rules and boundaries and risks for error, not to mention the discomfort of having to correct and instruct each other as we practice together and sometimes get it wrong. Is it really worth it? Wouldn't our corporate life be so much easier if we just sang, listened to a sermon, and went to lunch? I mean, nobody would have to fail or get their feelings hurt. Nobody would have the opportunity to inappropriately grab the spotlight and grandstand or say something dumb or embarrass themselves. We wouldn't have to correct each other. (laughs) Is this really worth it? Let's be honest, people. Many pastors, many churches, many Christian people have simply decided to say, no, (laughs) it's not. I'm not in the habit of doing anything uncomfortable. Why would I start now, right? (laughs) The answer is because welcoming the work of the Spirit isn't optional. Welcoming the work of the Spirit is to walk through a doorway straight into the heart of Jesus. In fact, when Jesus prepared to leave his disciples, he actually calmed their fears with this, the promise of the Spirit. John 14, I'm going to ask the Father, guys, he's going to give you another helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And you know what? The world cannot receive the spirit because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he's gonna teach you all things. He's gonna bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. That's why the great Puritan preacher Thomas Goodwin unpacked the significance of Jesus' words here, saying, Jesus is like a loving husband who, when he has to go away, makes sure to enlist the promise of his closest friend to care for his wife in his absence. Goodwin says, if we listen to the Spirit and don't quench him, he'll tell us, quote, nothing but stories of Jesus' love. Goodwin imagines Jesus saying to us, the spirit can come from heaven in an instant and bring you fresh tidings of my mind and tell you the thoughts I last had of you. Even at the very minute 
when I'm thinking of them, so that you shall have my heart as surely and as speedily as if I were with you. And the Spirit will be continually breaking your hearts with my love for you. So why are these easily abused, problematic spiritual gifts like prophecy so profoundly upbuilding and encouraging in spite of all that? Well, Thomas Goodwin says, it's because the Spirit carries Christ's heart to you straight from heaven. So in closing, we cannot forget that it's the Word made flesh who sent the Spirit. (laughs) And it's the Spirit who testifies of the Word. Paul would be astounded if he were here with us today to discover that people, pastors, published authors, God forbid, would ever dream of pitting standing on the word against keeping in step with the spirit. That's why Thomas Goodwin can say, the spirit prays in you because Christ prays for you. Tongues, prophecy, they flow from us because they're connected to Christ's intercession for us. Through the gifts, the Spirit is carrying messages straight to us from the heart of Jesus. The Spirit prays in you because Christ prays for you. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for not leaving us as orphans, but sending your Spirit. Holy Spirit, we welcome your work in this gathering. Holy Spirit, we repent of the times when we've held you at arm's length because it was uncomfortable or we were afraid to take the lid off. Lord, thank you that, thank you, that you don't nurse grudges against your people. Thank you for your patience. Lord, thank you that you've inscripturated Psalm 103, that you know our frame that we're but dust. Thank you for your patience with us. But we do. In this moment, we open our hearts and we welcome you, Holy Spirit, to move, to speak, to bring your presence and your power, to bring messages straight from the heart of Jesus to us for each other. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.